0: Welcome to You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition. I am Ray Ortland, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Sam Alberry. Sam, I've got a question for you. What's your favorite movie?
1: It's a hard, it's a hard one, isn't it? Um, one of my favorite movies is called A Few Good Men. Ah. came out in 1991, I think, 92, something mm. like that. Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, um, I think the best I've seen of either of them in any movie, and it's about a court-martial going on in the, in the U.S. Navy. So, actually, it's great because it talks about honor and all these sorts oh, of things. Yeah. And uh, that famous line, you, you can't handle the truth, that comes from that movie. Oh, interesting. I've never seen it. Oh, right. Well, let's, let's stop this right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I would say uh, it would be a toss-up for me between um, It's a Wonderful Life, with James Stewart and The Hunt for Red October with Sean Connery. Very different movies, but I love them both. Um, But I think I would give the edge to um, It's a Wonderful Life because it's a story about humaneness prevailing in a world of brutality and disgusting oppression. And humaneness prevails not by swagger and pushiness, but by accepting affliction, hardship, and even injustice. Wow. And, and, and that's a wonderful life. <laughs> you have to be a Christian to be crazy enough to believe that's real. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Okay, now, so we're talking about gospel doctrine creating gospel culture. We're saying that Faithful ministries, young pastors um, pursuing faithful ministries are not only preaching the Bible faithfully, but they're also leading the people into an experience of grace, a shared experience of grace. Uh, so gospel culture is not a matter of uh, isolated individuals in the congregation you know, being blessed by the ministry, although that's wonderful. But a culture is what we all share together in a certain body of people. So the gospel says something and the gospel does something. The gospel says that there is a God in heaven who, for Jesus' sake, receives the undeserving. The gospel does something. It creates a receptive, welcoming social environment where good things happen to bad people for Jesus' sake. And we all share that together as a sacred reality. It's not a compromise. It's not a concession. It's the highest of holy experiences in all this world. So anyway, so this is about gospel culture. And what we'd like to do this time, Sam, is just think our way through the main points of a kind of typical Sunday morning worship service. In an evangelical church, um, in a non-denomination specific way, the component parts of a worship service that so many young pastors are building out every Sunday faithfully. How can a worship service both preach gospel doctrine and cultivate and nurture gospel culture? Um, and the verse that we that that you suggested just before we began to record. Of course is Romans 15:7 Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What if what if thousands of churches across the country over the next 5 years begin to stand out in our angry world? For the welcoming tone that's being set there, it resonates. It is so unmistakably clear and alluring. Well, that's why we're doing this podcast. We long for that. We pray for that.
1: And it's interesting with that, that verse as well. It it It's only been in the last couple of years I've realized that the the first two minutes of a service are two of the most important minutes of the service. I think I've always sort of thought, well, it's just saying hello and saying welcome. But it's amazing what you can do in that first two minutes, and it's amazing what you might fail to do in that first two minutes. Because that, that is setting the tone for the entire rest of the meeting. And we we care deeply about preaching. We want the sermon to be fundamental and sort of a, a central part of the of that service experience and of, of what happens. But if, if the service starts off on the wrong note, then you're already having barriers by the time you get up to preach, you're already having to go against a grain that you didn't want to be there. Whereas if, if the opening of the service goes well and the rest follows suit, people are already lined up in the right direction even before you've stood up to preach. And many
0: people walk into church expecting to get a pep talk or maybe even a tongue lashing. Yeah. And um, um, sort of a, a cheerleader kind of experience perhaps from the front. Um, exhausted, weary, defeated sinners don't need cheerleading.
1: And they don't need scolding.
0: Yep. So it really I strongly agree it really matters. Those first two minutes, the tone that the pastor sets, and this is pastoral ministry. This is not something you hand off to some, the, the, whoever's leading the band or, or, or leading the singing, whatever it may be. This is pastoral ministry. So I don't remember what the occasion was, but I I discovered on the homepage of the website of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wonderful PCA church, I I discovered there a call to worship that, I don't know if they composed it themselves or if it came out of Presbyterian tradition, but I was captivated by this. Here's what it said. To all who are weary and need rest to all who mourn and long for comfort to all who fail and desire strength and to all who sin and need a savior this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus the friend of sinners and I I thought that says it exactly that is what I want to say to Nashville. That's what I want to say to the world, Um, because who isn't exhausted these days and needs rest? By the way, in a Bible Belt place like Nashville, people walk into church kind of perhaps expecting that the the message they're going to get that day is the pastor saying, y'all are slackers, you need to re-up, you need to get serious this time and so forth. Well, what if... They hear the opposite message. What if they, they experience the opposite tone? What if they walk into this sacred cloud of assurance and all-sufficient divine grace for people who are weary, people who are mourning, people who are failing, and people who are sinning? That's a game changer.
1: So, well, it, it's so similar to what Jesus himself says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, um, as, as well as the, the, the sort of the tongue lashes, you also get the, the kind of welcome that can often unintentionally imply we're the good people because we've all come to church, and, you know, we're patting God on the head just by being here, and isn't he lucky that we're down here being such good people?
0: Gosh, that is so absurdly blasphemous i have to just laugh i'm sorry yeah yeah crazy
1: but the nice the the beautiful thing about that call to worship is it's it's catching people where they actually are in reality they're not having to pretend to be something as they walk into the church it's you know to all who are weary and or who mourn and who fail and who who sin and That includes everyone. It's inclusive. Yeah, and we're not saying
0: this is a magic formula. We are saying we have found that that gospel greeting, that gospel culture uh, nurturing declaration that we make gently and even quietly um, has landed powerfully on people so many times i mean right from the get
1: go they've start to tear up because well i when i first started attending emmanuel i remember sitting next to a guy who looked very much like a man's man you know gruff exterior tattoos everywhere there wasn't already hair kind of thing and i remember saying to him how, you know how did you come to emmanuel and he said oh my wife and i moved to nashville a few years ago and a friend of hers was attending. So we came along and he said, I walked into the building, looked around and thought, no, this isn't going to be for me. And then he said, Ray then stood up and did a call to worship. He said, I burst into tears and we've not been anywhere since. But it, it seems to me there, there are two frames of mind people often have as they walk into church. One is, "I'm I'm just too bad to be here. Everyone else looks like they've got their Christianity sorted out and their lives together, and I'm the one who hasn't. I'm, I'm the imposter here. And the other danger is the, the person who walks in thinking, I'm atoning for everything I've done badly this week by showing up, and this is my kind of, you know, this, this is what will make me right with God, is the fact that I, I'm a church attender and I'm fulfilling all righteousness. And the, the great thing about that type of welcome is it it, sets both mindsets in the right kind of frame of mind, isn't it?
0: Jesus did not, coming back to the verse you just read a moment ago, Sam, Jesus did not say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a challenge. If I, if I preach on a Sunday morning and someone walks up to me afterwards and you know, intending to be very kind and encouraging, but they say, oh, pastor, that was a challenging message. (laughs) I feel like saying, I'm so sorry. Can we back up and do this again? Because that's total failure. People do not need a challenge. Religious culture might have taught them that that's the English word they're supposed to use to be kind to the pastor. But young pastor... You and I both know very well people don't need challenge. We're walking through. Advertising is challenge. Advertising is law. Advertising is an insinuation of inferiority and inadequacy. Buy our product, you'll stop being a loser. You will be amazing. It's, it appeals to everything that is fraudulent about us. It's a culture of fraudulence preying upon our insecurities. Church is not a better version of that. Church is the counterculture. When we are plowing through work, and Monday through Friday, sometimes through Saturday, at work we never fully measure up. We're always having to pedal faster and do better, try harder. We walk out of that social environment where we never fully belong into a Christian church covered with the finished work of Christ on the cross, who said, it is finished. We walk into a message and an environment of acceptance and completeness already prepared. We receive it with the empty hands of faith. We enter in and we exhale. And we rest, and we breathe, and we are re-oxygenated to go out and love and serve in all of that stress and all of that soul injury until next Sunday when we come back into the message and experience of the grace of Christ in church. And the call to worship sets that tone. And if, young pastor, if you will steward wisely that the first two minutes, as Sam said, of the worship service uh, Sunday by Sunday, your people will notice it, their hearts will melt, and the rest of the service will accomplish far more for the glory of Christ uh, through that, that simple way of beginning it.
1: It's, it's trying to find a way of, of starting a service that gives people a sense of relief that I, this was the right place to come this morning. This was worth getting out of bed for. Um, it's not that God needs me to worship him, to give him a shot in the arm. Um, actually, God invites me in all of my need to receive from him. Isn't that I love that.
0: And, and we're not saying our way is the best way. Pastor, you figure out a better way and let us know and we'll steal your idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now so we're going through the service you've, you know by God's grace for his glory you've set the tone that you want to set of, of assurance and all sufficient divine grace is this cloud we're now walking into by faith we, we come along to let's say the pastoral prayer it's unimaginable that a, a Christian service of worship would not have prayer people come to church they need to hear their pastor pray for them so, Sam, your, your ministry in a pastoral prayer is—you did it yesterday. I found it so meaningful, so helpful. It was powerful. It was compelling. What do you believe—how how can a pastoral prayer in a Sunday morning worship service help people into gospel culture?
1: It's, it's a way of—I think we're trying to do several things at the same time with a pastoral prayer. We're, we're showing people— how to come before God in prayer that we can, that we're welcome to, that we're invited to, that it's not it's not presumption on our part because he's invited us to. I think we're also trying to show people these are the sorts of things we should have on our hearts if we're the people of God. So I, I always think back to the Lord's Prayer and how the very fact of the Lord's Prayer and how Jesus structures it, shows us prayer is not about trying to bring God on board with our agenda, trying to twist God's heart round to what we want the Lord's Prayer shows us prayer one of the functions of prayer is to reorient our lives around God's priorities so I think prayer is a way of of trying to reflect the priorities God has given us as his people and to show something of of how those things should lie on our hearts the very the very tone and posture that we adopt in prayer I would hope reflects that kind of gospel culture so we don't, we don't pray about people in desperate need in a way that sounds flippant and cavalier and lacking in any kind of empathy. But actually we, we want people to, to care about things in a certain way. When you lead
0: in the pastoral prayer at Emmanuel, by the time, let's say you pray for two or three minutes, by the time you have finished praying, I have relocated, I've been relocated, I start out just being me, right? Okay, I'm making progress because we're, you know, we're we're 15 minutes into the service, so I'm better than I was 15 minutes before. When I'm done, I feel loved. I feel thought about. I and and the, how do I even say this? I feel that God is involved in my reality. It just sounds so basic and sort of almost primal to put it that way. But that's what prayer accomplishes. I, as I hear Pastor Sam Albury pray over me, this awareness comes over my being. God is here. God is involved. I'm not God forsaken. I'm not alone. I'm not friendless. I'm not powerless. And uh, whatever the words might be, whatever the you know the issue of the day might be and so forth, there's just that broad awareness that sort of washes over me, I'm lifted into hope.
1: Mm.
0: I'm feeling less oppression and more hope and expectancy. When a pastoral prayer helps sort of elevates a, a congregant, I'm just a pew warmer for crying out loud. But I am being served and, and ministered to. I'm experiencing gospel culture with everybody else in the room. We're all going there together because the guy up front prays that way.
1: It's amazing. There are, there are other things I think is that, are, that are part of the dynamic. Um, I will, if I'm doing the pastoral prayer, I will try to have liaised with the person preaching to, to get a sense of what is he hoping the Lord will do through the sermon, and how can the pastoral prayer soften some of the ground of our heart to receive that so i'll try and pray in a way that that kind of prepares us for what i'm i'm now knowing is going to be the burden of the sermon something else it's worth i think thinking about is um i'm a church of england clergyman um thomas cranmer's collects i love i love the way he structures them he always begins with theology and the the piece of theology that is most pertinent to the request that is about to be made of God, so if it's a a request you know that God would be a near be a near to the to the sick, it might be a a prayer that begins by acknowledging that actually God is the one who draws near to the broken-hearted God is the one who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, something that reflects in God's own revelation of himself something that shows us why. This is a concern we can legitimately bring to him that he's going to care about. So Cramer's prayers are a great model, I think, of how to, to pray in a way that shows we're not just bringing to God our own. It's not room service. It's not just, hey, I, I quite like this, so I'm going to ask for it. But it's actually thinking, what, is, what has God shown us that he cares about?
0: That's fascinating. That, that explains to me why uh, A big part of the reason why your pastoral prayers work. The collects of Cranmer, you don't recite them, but the categories of thought and the grandeur of vision have flowed through you and are translated by you into a pastoral prayer that lands on me today with real power. I know I can trust it because there's legitimate substantial theology in your prayer without being tedious but heart-lifting.
1: Well, the other thing that that should do as well is it shows that I'm not just praying for something that is my hobby horse. If I can draw a straight line between something God has shown us about himself and the thing I'm now bringing to him in prayer, it legitimizes the request. Well,
0: yeah, that's good. Okay, so call to worship, pastoral prayer. Not long after that, there's going to be the the sermon, preaching the gospel. Um, How can preaching a sermon, an expositional sermon, the Bible is open, you're working through a passage, how can uh, the ministry of preaching simultaneously announce gospel doctrine and nurture gospel culture? Uh, Let me throw out two things on the table, Sam, That I'd love to know what you think, too. one is uh, two considerations. One, the message. Two, the tone. The message, you, you mentioned Matthew 11 uh, a few minutes ago. Let me read this again. I think this is basically the whole message of Holy Scripture from cover to cover. When Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light that I think is the best hermeneutic with which to read the bible from cover to cover and the best message uh, to convey wherever we are from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about, ultimately, even though each passage will take us into Jesus from a different angle of vision and show us something more about him, and not every passage has to be uh, deeply comforting. There are really unsettling passages in the Bible. Okay, When you're preaching through a book of the Bible and you come to an unsettling passage, Let it be unsettling. Don't muffle the voice of that passage. But it will, if you're not just preaching the passage, but preaching Christ, it will take you to this Jesus that we find in Matthew 11, ultimately. So the message uh, is is one of Jesus in his personal invitation. And because this is preaching, not teaching— It's not, come learn about Jesus. The ministry of preaching, as opposed to teaching, is Jesus himself saying, come to me. He's saying that through the preacher. Um, That's the other thing I I would want to point out, that the message can announce gospel doctrine, leading people to Jesus himself, and we all get re-energized and... Uh, less despairing, more hopeful in Jesus himself. That's the message. It's not just instructional. Mm-hmm. It's alluring. And then the other thing, the tone. Um, I was with uh, Willie Mackenzie in the Highlands of Scotland a few years ago, and he was recalling a an ordination exam, I think there in the Church of Scotland, maybe the Free Church, I don't know. And John Murray of Westminster Seminary was one of the examiners, and he asked the prospective ordinand, What is the difference between preaching and teaching? And the young man did not have a a clear answer, so John Murray proposed three Ps, personal, passionate, pleading. When a pastor is preaching the Bible expositionally, leading people, the whole message funnels down to the all-sufficient grace of Christ for the undeserving. In his own authentic, non-weird, a socially acceptable way in his cultural context, that pastor wants to reach out to the very hearts of the people with personal, passionate pleading. Opening the door for them to close with Christ, whether for the very first time or at their personal point of need that day, and, and take the outstretched hand of Christ in their own hand. A faithful pastor leads people to Christ himself, not just to biblical information. Every faithful sermon will have instructional content. At the end of a sermon, I want to know something more about the Bible than I did when I walked in. That's a legitimate expectation, but I want something even more. I want the pastor to preach to me in such a way that he opens a door for me to come to Christ himself and that happens through personal, passionate pleading. That's the difference between preaching and teaching. If all I do is have people journaling, journaling and taking notes as I preach,
1: I feel like a failure. I, think I'm, I may have misremembered this. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who, who said that he wanted people to stop taking notes in the last part of his sermon. That if they were still taking notes then, he regarded himself to have failed. Because you wanted people to be so focused on Jesus, so conscious of the presence of Jesus, that they weren't now thinking, oh, I need to write this down. They were just two in the moment. I love that, I love that aspiration. Um, I'm struck, and I know you've been haunted by this verse as well, but in, in John 5, 39, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And we think, great. I mean, searching the Scriptures, great. Realising that they have the message of eternal life, fantastic. He then says, it is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me. It's possible to come to Scripture without coming to Christ. And it's therefore possible to teach Scripture without presenting Christ. And if, if, if preaching is is mere data transfer... It's not preaching. Um, You know, the the demons believed in one God, James tells us. So just having information about God being one is not enough.
0: Preaching can nurture an anti-gospel culture. Yeah. Preaching can succeed, quote-unquote, in nurturing an anti-gospel culture. Preaching from an open Bible that follows the text at some level can actually create unhealthy churches. Yeah. But there is another kind of preaching. I saw my dad do this thousands of times uh, in his ministry. He was the best preacher I have ever heard, hands down. Uh, because he had, and you know, I want to say to every, every pastor listening, we have to ask the Lord for this. This is not something you can learn from a podcast. It's not something you can take. A, it's not a course in seminary. It's an anointing. It's a gift from above. It's a, it's a, the Lord is able to put his hand on you as a preacher such that you, in ways you're not even fully aware of, you are helping people experience Jesus in his presence, in his glory, his reality, his immediacy, his accessibility
1: with such alluring
0: power, they're lifted to
1: him. That's preaching. Ephesians 2.17 has ruined preaching for me um, because Paul writes to them that Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. So Paul's writing to these people in, in Ephesus and he's saying Christ came and preached to you. And the question is, When? When did Christ go and preach to them? Is there a bit in the Gospels where Jesus, you know, takes a ferry to Asia Minor and (laughs) goes off to Ephesus and preaches there for a bit, and that's what Paul's referring to? No, Christ came and preached peace through presumably the Gospel ministry of Paul and his colleagues. Paul says else, you know, in the same letter, a few verses earlier, that, that Christ himself is our peace. So Christ was preaching himself to the people of Ephesus, both Jew and Gentile. Christ had come and preached to them. If that's, if that's the case, I don't ever want any, any sermon to be anything less than that. That's right.
0: It is so sacred. And we're not talking about handy tips that we can master for that to happen. When a church grows in its awareness, a whole church, not isolated individuals sprinkled throughout the church. The whole church grows in its awareness. When we are under the ministry of the Word, we're experiencing Jesus. He is present here. That is, that is gospel culture at its highest and most holy and most glorious. That is the ministry of preaching. And I'm thinking maybe I and every young pastor listening Maybe we just need to get down on our knees and ask the Lord for that that grace and that gift.
1: I know for me that, you know, if someone comes up to you at the end of a service and says, you're a great preacher. That's nice. It's better than you're a lousy preacher. If they say to you, isn't that an amazing passage? That's better. Best is when someone comes up and says, isn't Jesus amazing? Yeah,
0: And given what I'm facing this week, maybe he will get me through this. I'm going to dare to believe that. (laughs) Okay. That's what we live for. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so the call to worship, pastoral prayer, the sermon, and let, you know, we're going to spend the rest of our lives growing in this area of real preaching Mm -hmm. such that the doctrine and the culture are happening with this wonderful magic. Okay, Call to worship, pastor, prayer, preaching, and then the benediction at the end. We're gonna, we're gonna send the people off into their week with some kind of message, some kind of impact, a gift right at the very end. And it's not an announcement. Maybe there's something to be said of that nature, but the final word. I mean, the sermon is not the touchdown. The sermon is, is getting the congregation into the red zone. The, 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 the benediction at the end is the touchdown. Sam, what do you? What can a pastor do through a benediction to to, to send the people away with the uh, the power of gospel culture in their hearts?
1: The answer isn't weigh them down with the task you want them to do this week. It it is rather to send people out of the building propelled by their own assurance of the love of Christ for them. That they are going into this week with Jesus, uh, with His love, with His with his grace, with that, that rest for the soul that he has, he has promised.
0: Personally, I really like sort of traditional benedictions. They're triune. Mm. Uh, they're densely packed. Um, and what we've done at, a, at Emmanuel again, this is not the best way. Please let Sam and me know your way. It's probably better. But I, I, I always ask the people, well, no, would you raise your hands in openness to God? And so we all just lift our hands like this. And and then I, I I give them, and I always say, this is God's benediction. This is not my benediction. I'm not pronouncing my benediction yeah. on the people. Would you receive God's benediction as you go into your week? And they're just one of the classic, you know, simple. And i look them right in the eye. It's so important for the pastor. See, I'm an introvert. I'm bookish. I'm... Uh, withdrawn, and so forth. So I have had to make myself get over that and just look at the people by faith in Christ. Look at them as if they, they matter because they do. They matter supremely. Treat them as if they matter. Treat them as if they're weak is consequential. It's, it's important in the sight of Christ himself. So invite them to lift their hands, look them right in the eye with all my heart, May the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be and abide with you, both now and forevermore. Amen. Boom. Done. (laughs) Uh, It's. I don't. Maybe that doesn't work for anybody else. It sure works for me.
1: Yeah. There are, there are some amazing benedictions right there in the Bible. Um, yes. I've got the end of 1 Thessalonians open in front of me now. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it.
0: People need to know the God they've experienced in the worship service the fellowship and the social dynamics they've experienced in the worship service. The vision of reality that is not heart-crushing but heart-lifting that they've experienced in the worship service was not a fluke. It is a new reality. And they're not going to leave it behind when they walk out of church. They're going to be exporting it when they walk out of church. And the Lord who is so close to them in those sacred moments is going to be just as close to them in the unsacred moments about to descend upon them. And they're going to soak it through this week. They are going to make an eternal difference in the world this week. It's going to be a great, it's going to be an amazing week. It's going to be filled with suffering. They're going to sin. They're going to fail. They're going to stumble. And the grace of God will be all sufficient. We're going to be back here next Sunday, and he's going to do it all over again. He's going to get us from here all the way into eternity. Our lives are going to make a difference the entire way. The benediction just radiates that
1: confidence. Yeah, we've we've often talked about wanting people who— limp into church to to float on their way out of church.
0: So there is a way to sort of steward a worship service on a typical Sunday morning or maybe Saturday night in such a way that both message and experience converge on the gospel itself. Now, um, pivoting, Sam, to our gratitude for uh, Crossway Books and their sponsorship of... You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors. I want to talk about your book that's coming up soon, going to be released—well, uh, actually, by the time this podcast goes out, it might actually be available to people, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, by Sam Albury, published by Crossway. Wait a minute. Hold everything. What God has to say about our bodies—okay, I, I deeply believe God has second thoughts about the fact that he ever gave me a body. God is, you know, my body is icky, and my my uh, I feel bad things, and and I get sick, and I sneeze, and my body is just an embarrassment to the all holy God above. Am I right about that?
1: <laughs> he seems to have enjoyed making several billion of these bodies, <laughs> and he thought them up. So presumably, for all their quirks and idiosyncrasies and peculiar noises from time to time he's a fan of the human body and you know it's hard to pay the human body a bigger compliment than the fact that Jesus himself came to us and became human and, and stayed human he didn't ditch his humanity when he returned to heaven there is now a human at the right hand of God on high so Really, I just wanted to think about how the gospel is good news for our bodies. It's good news in the sense that it shows us how much dignity we have in our physicality, that, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's good news because if our bodies now belong to Jesus, which Paul says they do in 1 Corinthians 6, the only person who needs to be pleased with our bodies is Jesus. Wow. And he's a much kinder master than our culture is. And the body that is pleasing to Jesus is the body that is consecrated to him. So you don't need to look like the person on the billboard in order to be physically pleasing to Jesus. And of course, we, we, we see in Scripture that we will we will experience the full redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, we will experience a resurrection. The, the bodily experience we have now is not the only bodily experience we're ever going to get. And so physically... Our best days are ahead of us, not behind us.
0: It's hard to think of a more urgently relevant consideration right now in our culture than the human body and what the gospel has to say about that. So your book is timely, your book is faithful, your book is relevant, and there's a kind of personal dimension to this that is very meaningful to every single one of us, because who of us... Is entirely comfortable inside our own skin. Who of us looks in the mirror and says, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not anymore." Yeah. So, um, so are you saying that in this book? What did what was the for you as you researched it and wrote it? What was the the most surprising and striking insight you gained from writing the book?
1: That very point that my body simply needs to be pleasing to Jesus. Um, not to the people in Hollywood, not to the people on Madison Avenue, but to Jesus. And actually, this lumpy piece of flesh I carry around. If in, in Romans 6, I, I offer the parts of my body as God for instruments of righteousness, offering our bodies to him, Romans 12, 1 and 2, It's pleasing to him.
0: His yoke is easy, and his burden is light.
1: Here's the other thing. Psalm 34, I think it is, says those who look to him are radiant. It's not what we look like. It's what we look at that is going to be the key for us. Oh, Oh, gosh, that's profound.
0: Sam, thank you for writing that book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. We know you have it ton to do these days and so it means a lot to us that you would listen to the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors. Do visit tgc.org podcasts for more episodes and it would be great if you'd subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. Spotify, wherever you listen, wherever you hang out. Thanks. The You're Not Crazy podcast was made possible by multiple team members at TGC. That team includes the hosts of the show, Ray Ortland and Sam Albury, as well as Stephen Morales and Andrew LaPara as executive producer and producer. Heather Farrell, our podcast lead. Gabriel Reyes, our graphic designer. And Josh Diaz, our audio engineer. You're Not Crazy is a part of the Gospel Coalition podcast network. You can find more podcasts at tgc.org forward slash podcasts.